Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. <laughs> All right, we're starting off laughing. That's a good way to start. Good morning, Augie. <laughs> good, good morning, Nia. <laughs> How are you doing today? I, I'm doing quite good. And, and, and by the way, uh, since we started off the, the episode with me laughing, I, I, uh, I, I got to disclose, um, uh, and uh, our faithful listeners know this, this is one of my favorite times of the year simply because every day, every week, okay, at the end of June, sometimes bleeding into July, um, it's, it's like the, the, the Super Bowl Okay, uh, oh. for for Supreme Court aficionados. This right? is your Christmas. Oh you my get goodness! A present every yes. day. You get yes. something to chew on. You're you're like a dog that gets all the chew toys. Yes. In one month, and you're just gonna. Ah, 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 ah. There's so much to go through. Yes. Okay. And uh, uh, and and I got to admit, I'm a little punchy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Oh, oh, you're punch drunk on the love of the, of the, the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court, right? Okay, and, there's and, a, and, there's a country song in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I love country music. I'm saying that in a good way. <laughs> just just in case anybody was wondering. I but mean, they are, could... they seem to be handing out like rulings like candy, like they're just. You know what I mean? Like, oh no, it's like it's like Mardi Gras, where they're yes. throwing the beads, they're throwing right. rulings left and right. They're just and yes, and being very and, polarized by some of these. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, you know, and you know, so you know, no matter where you fall on the ideological spectrum, okay, in the last two weeks, yeah, they've made you mad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I don't care who you are and I don't care what you believe. At some point this summer, the Supreme Court has made you mad. Yes. Or if you're not mad yet, they still got a couple weeks, I think. Oh, yeah. Hey, so, we, we so still, there's there's the possibility of yeah, oh, no, still, they'll get to you. Just yeah, wait your still, turn. <laughs> yeah, there's still eight or nine opinions uh, in, 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 uh, in, in for some rather important cases. Yeah. But, so, but, but uh, uh, the. Uh, 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 what we're going to be talking about today um, are a whole series of rulings covering things like um, uh, state abortion laws to whether or not the federal government can resume executions to uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, landmark or chief uh, post Great Recession federal government agencies and whether or not that person. Uh, can be removed solely by the president, or could Congress mitigate that? Which okay. I think you've mentioned to me before. So I think that that's an actual, yeah, follow up to a previous, yeah, uh, so follow up to a previous case when we were talking about presidential powers way back uh, yes. a thousand years ago when we first started this podcast. Yeah. So uh, the this particular case, um, and, and again on our uh, reference guide. Uh, we will give you the links for these cases. Uh, the, the case name is SELA Law versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Okay, and I'm just going to refer to the case 
uh, for this podcast as uh, seal of law, okay? Um, this is a case that went ahead, uh, the, the, the Bureau uh, issued a, a, a ruling, okay, that would force CELA law to pay um, uh, a rather large sum uh, 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 in fines um, for violating some of the provisions in regards to uh, collecting uh, overdue uh, monies, okay? And you know the, the the use of you know individuals and firms, you know collection agencies, right? Oh, okay. And Seal Law went ahead and said we do not have to comply. Is so wait, Seal Law is a is a company that does that. They're a company yes. that yeah, and they contract okay. out with subcontractors, etc. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, and and basically what you had in this case is Seal Law said we don't have to comply with this adverse find, finding, <laughs> adverse finding, okay, yes, you you now must pay the federal government a couple hundred thousand dollars. And anyway, they said, nah uh Nuh-uh. And, and their nuh-uh went to the Supreme Court. Court right? <laughs> like it does. Yeah, and, and, and the argument that Seal Law made was uh, uh, about how the director of the Bureau, okay, could be removed. Seal Law basically argued that because uh, the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was part of the executive branch, the president must have the authority to um, remove whoever is director. And the way the law was written, okay, the director uh, could only be removed for, you know, cause, okay? Um, And basically, it was an independent agency led by an independent director. And the idea was, much like independent regulatory commissions, okay, we want this bureau to be nonpartisan. They are supposed to focus on protecting consumers, okay? And sometimes that gets difficult if the president responding to interest group or lobbying pressures might wanna go ahead and put somebody in that position who isn't consumer, if you will, friendly, right? So the okay. logic, okay, but the logic of Sealy Law was this violates separation of powers. Wait, how can the, how, yeah. Wait, wait. So it has nothing to do with the fine. No. They're not even, they're not even arguing we shouldn't have to pay the fine. No, their argument was nothing that the Bureau has fun, has concluded about us okay um should go into effect because the bureau and how the bureau's director may or may not be removed is unconstitutional that feels like a reach well it's a reach. right like i mean okay, but putting aside our whole but if you go ahead and make the argument that the appointment and removal of an executive branch official is unconstitutional. Then everything that they do would be- is unconstitutional. Oh, I see. There you go. Okay, so so that, so they went to the root of the problem, right? Because basically what happened, let me guess, is the fine itself is probably legal within the rules if, if the person is, correctly or if the person is constitutionally appointed that's right so you have to get rid of the person who made the rules yes 
in order to yes. i see that's that's rather clever on their part isn't it yeah well i mean in in, in, in although this, it i did it work out for them uh well the supreme court agreed that the removal process is unconstitutional okay but the court basically severed that part of the law and said consumer <laughs> financial protection bureau still had authority to go ahead and judge the behavior of SELA law. <laughs> okay. So they said, you might be right about this unconstitutional thing, but that's not relevant to your case. That's right. Okay. okay. And they so they're going to have to pay the fine. Yeah. And they applied, if you will, principles of severability. Can you go ahead and sever or remove a part of the law that's unconstitutional and leave the rest of the law? Okay. Um, so the court's vote was split, okay, uh, between the conservatives and the liberals. No. Big shock, right? <laughs> uh, uh, the five conservatives, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Thomas, uh, Elito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh all said the removal process violated separation of powers. Okay, only the president, okay, can remove an executive branch official. Congress cannot place limits on presidential removal, okay? Uh, the four liberals disagreed, okay? Um, so, um, so basically, okay, and a lot of my students, their eyes roll over when, you know, um, I talk in constitutional law about presidential appointment and removal, and they're like, well, what's the big deal? And I'm like, well, think about it this way. If you're in charge of the executive branch, i.e. the president is, and you're told in the Constitution that you have to take care to faithfully execute the law, but there is a rather potent law, okay, um, where that agency can go ahead and do things you might not like, then how can you, you know, plausibly argue, well, I'm taking care that the laws are faithfully executed because I think the law should be executed this way, but this person who's supposed to be reporting to me is saying, uh-uh, I don't have to follow the law that way, and there's nothing you can do about it because you can only remove me for cause. And they're like, oh, okay. I mean, I got to admit, Nia, okay, I would like to have Congress go ahead and give me the authority to go ahead and tell a lot of my bosses, uh-uh, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> but I can see where that would make, but the, where but that, the would make that, would mean, that would mean that executive appointments would be a lot more complicated to remove. Yes. Um, and but, but also if you wanted to, wholesale remove you wouldn't be able to yeah and, and, and understand why congress does this right? well in this particular instance because the the um uh, the consumer financial protection bureau i think they were worried that he would dismantle the entire thing yeah because the current president is no big fan of the you know uh C cfpb okay, i think the that the, the and Republicans in general have oh, yeah, disapproved like of it. it. Yeah, right. yeah. 
Yeah, they don't because like it at all. They think that it's a um, uh, a a stoppage on commerce, like it's a oh yeah, they, right? They, it's they, a they, it's a suppression. Yeah, of they, capitalism. They, they, yeah, I mean that there's a particular industry, okay, whose job is to go after people who don't pay their debts. Okay, it's the collective collection agency industry, right? right. And I, and I, you know, well, but also this, the CFPB does things like you have to make your, um, your credit card statement in a readable font. Yeah. And it has to be in English. You can't slip into Latin there in the middle. And that's right. I mean, these these are all things that people can understand. That's right. Okay. You know, predatory loan practices fall underneath this bureau. Right. Okay. So, you know, Republicans don't like. But it's like seen it. as overregulation of industry, right? Sure. Which is which is an anti-Republican idea. Yes. From the right? get-go, regardless yeah. of the industry. Yes, I mean, and and and, and there's even a you know b- broader theoretical point, which is the more government regulates business transaction, the greater the cost. Okay, and therefore, okay, businesses will be less likely to engage in activity that generates. Um, you know, uh, uh, if you will, activity in the economy, okay, uh, greater regulation, you know, um, uh, dampens competition. Cost. Yes, that, you know, gets yeah, then yeah. passed on to consumers, okay, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. But in terms of the Constitution, okay, <laughs> and, and you and I talked about this, you made reference to a previous podcast episode where I went ahead and said, there's nothing in the Constitution that talks about how executive branch officials may be removed. That's one of those gaps. That's one of those gaps, right? Oh, the, the founders. Okay, the appointment process clearly they, they laid out. They gave us the Second Amendment, to... poorly written. They gave yeah. us yeah, gaps right? about things like how do you get rid of people? Like, I mean, you, you, you discussed it in another pod, podcast episode about the census. There's a requirement that the census must take place every 10 years. And then there are absolutely no details about how that's supposed yeah, to occur. Exactly. Go do a census. Well, thanks. Okay. That's, you know what I mean? Like, that's not really helpful. Okay. So, so, so in this particular instance, the, so the court did something fascinating to me and I want to ask you about it. Okay. So they, you said they severed. Um, the, unconstitutional part of the law right so they're saying we're going to rule on this in two separate in two separate sub clauses if you were right there's this one part which no this bureau has the right to punish you and second then secondly but separate from that yes the way that people are are removed from from this director's position is unconstitutional that's right is that a common thing that happens in the Supreme Court? Do they sever things um, like that? It arises with complex legislation. Okay. Right? You know, so for instance, when the Affordable Care Act was being challenged in front of the Supreme Court in 2012, in the case of NFIB versus Sebelius, a whole bunch of, I mean, a huge chunk of the oral argument but also the written briefs was whether or not, for instance, the individual mandate was severable from the rest of the law. Okay. Okay. Because 
you know, according to, you know, some, without the individual mandate, the Affordable Care Act, okay, just doesn't make sense legislatively. Right. Okay. On the other hand, could not there still be parts of the law that encourage Americans to get health insurance, even if they're not forced to by the federal government, i.e. the individual mandate, okay? So it happens with complex legislation, right? Um, And by the way, on the current court, there's a huge divide as to whether or not the court should engage in severability. I was get, that was going to okay. be my next question. Is that seems like one of those questions like textualism? Yes. Which is should we even be engaging in looking at something a certain way or taking a certain action? Yeah, like I can see where some of the purists would say that's not our job. Our job is not to separate these questions. This question came to us in a specific way. Yes. And we, should, we shouldn't have taken the case if we didn't like the way that the question came, but we don't get to just pick, cherry pick it and choose well, I mean, the parts we're going to respond to in one way and the parts we're going to respond to in another way. You, you are spot on, Nia. And to give you an example, and I know this will not come as a shock to you, Clarence Thomas is abundantly clear. Unless Congress specifically writes into the law that the rest of the law is still in effect, even if certain provisions are declared unconstitutional, according to Clarence Thomas, it's not the job of the court to save a law by severing the unconstitutional part. Yeah, that makes sense from him. That makes sense given his jurisprudence. Whereas somebody like a Stephen Breyer is just like, hey, Congress had an overall purpose in passing the law. If we can go ahead and sever a part of the law because it's unconstitutional, but the rest of the law still serves the purpose Congress had in mind, then that's what we should do. So Breyer's argument would be, you can't sever part of it that then makes the rest of the law un- unworkable or, unworkable or not what Congress wanted. That's right. Okay. So um, you could only sever pieces that don't yes. kill the body. Right. That's right. You can cut off a hand, but you can't pull out the heart. And, and, and there have been plenty of law review articles that make reference to sever- severability, much like a medical procedure. Right. Okay. You know, for those who have had to have, for instance, um, uh, a part of their leg cut off to go ahead and, you know, save the rest of the body. Right. Or, you know, you lose part of your arm, um, but the rest of you is maintained. I mean, that's basically the idea of severability. Right. You're still human. You're still a full human. You're still fully human. You're just missing whatever bit of that had to be. That's right. Okay. Um, And, you know, as far as Clarence Thomas is concerned, hey. You killed the patient. Yes. When you cut off that hand, you killed the patient. patient. We're done. Yes. Right. Um, But, you know, for Stephen Breyer, okay, no, we still have a patient. They just don't have this part because we declared that part unconstitutional. Okay. Yeah. But that wasn't the big ca- the, the, the big one for the week. <laughs> the, the one I know you want to get to, okay? <laughs> well, there's two I know you want to get to. 
One is June Medical versus Russo, and the other one is the Espinosa versus the state of Montana. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so yes. which one do you want to do first, Neil? Um, let's tackle June Medical. Okay. So June Medical. Um, uh, June Medical v. Russo? Russo? Yeah, Russo, right? Uh, this was a case where uh, a Louisiana law that required doctors to, uh, who perform abortions to have admitting privileges in nearby hospitals was being challenged as an undue burden on a woman's right to choose, okay? Right. And the Supreme Court in a five to four vote held that this law was unconstitutional, okay? And the vote outcome was Chief Justice John Roberts joining the four liberals so once again, John Roberts has just driven conservatives crazy. <laughs> I was going to say has betrayed his people. Yes. He, oh, he's a traitor is, to them. That, that is the mildest of the criticisms he's oh, getting right now. Yes, okay. but this is a family-friendly podcast, and we don't curse on this podcast. Yeah, that, well, we right. curse a little, but we don't curse like what I'm sure they're saying about him. We would not say on these yes. airwaves because i bet they're using at least three or four of the seven words you don't say on radio and, radio TV. and television so <laughs> uh yeah oh god god bless you nia for for bringing up george carlin uh, oh he, yes yeah but i'm but he gave them language to use that we can't use here but i'm sure that yes so okay so the majority so the of argument was was the, so, so the basis of the case was, in order to perform this medical procedure, you must have admitting rights at a local hospital. Yes. Um, and the other side said, what, probably something along the lines of the vast majority of people do not need to be admitted to the hospital? Well, I mean, well, the, the, the basic... It's like it's, it's not... It's not that kind of procedure or? Yeah, I mean, because many abortions, okay, are performed uh, either as outpatient surgeries or they're actually uh, performed at clinics, okay? And that um, if you were admitted to the hospital, someone would treat you. Like, yes. you wouldn't necessarily have to be the person who had initiated your, your treatment. Another person could treat you when you went to the hospital, if you were transferred to the hospital. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, this case is almost a word-for-word -word replica of a Supreme Court case from just four years ago, Hellerstead versus the state of Texas. <laughs> now, you said initially, I'm not trying to be difficult, but you said initially Louisiana. Is this Louisiana or Mississippi? Oh, it was Louisiana. Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, and... And in Hellerstead, okay, um, the Supreme Court in a five to four ruling, and at the time um, it was Anthony Kennedy who joined the four liberals, uh, uh, the United States Supreme Court said the Texas regulations, much like the Louisiana uh, uh, regulations uh, in this case, okay, violated um, uh, uh, a woman's right to privacy. It was an undue burden. Now, what's interesting was, in that case, John Roberts dissented, okay? In Hellerstead, he dissented. Okay. This time, 
he voted with the majority. So he gave the four liberals their you know, necessary fifth vote. But he made it very clear the reason why he did it wasn't because he had a change of heart and believed that Hellerstedt was decided correctly. He said he was voting, okay, uh, with the four liberals in this case because of precedent, the Hellerstedt precedent. And this is one of the criticisms of John Roberts by the conservatives. In this case, it was the first time he voted to uphold a woman's right to choose as being constitutional. First time. First time. Okay. Wow. Yes. He All went right. big. Yes. He went big on the first on the first time out of the out of the gate. Yes. Okay. Um, now, in his concurring opinion, okay, Breyer wrote the majority opinion in this case, just like he did in Hellerstead. But Roberts, in his concurring opinion, made it very clear that he thinks if states, okay, could come up with a better written, better reasoned law, that he could, okay, vote to uphold, okay, these kind of regulations. But he didn't think that Louisiana did anything better than Texas, so the court has to be consistent. Okay. <laughs> okay, so that must drive certain oh. people bonkers. Oh. Because oh I my. imagine what they would have seen this was as the beginning of overturning Roe v. Wade. That's right, okay. And he instead said, no, precedent that we set with Texas was that this was an an, uh, an undue burden, and it remains yes. an undue burden in the way. Well, okay, so let me back up just a sec. If I am correct, and I could be completely wrong, so please feel free to correct me, but I think that a lot of these laws were written by the same group or lobby group, individual, you know, set of individuals um, for different states. The the sort of um, Oh yeah, they're right. Are, there's a, aren't they? They're similar. A lot of them are similar in language, and they're yes. So I mean, this will keep happening until they rewrite those state laws to be. Well, according to Roberts, okay, you, you got to go. And what Roberts was responding to is, Roberts, okay, has a problem with how Breyer. Um, determined undue burden in both Hellerstead in this in this case. Breyer, and, and I've mentioned this in previous podcast episodes, Breyer loves cost-benefit analysis, right? Oh, yeah, he's okay. a policy wonk. Yeah, he's a policy wonk, right? So if a state is going to go ahead and say that doctors need to have admitting privileges so that abortions are a safer medical procedure, then they have to go ahead and show what those benefits would be and what the costs would be, okay? And if the costs outweigh the benefits, well, for Breyer, that's an undue burden. Okay. okay? That's an undue burden, right? That's a fairly mathematical way of looking at it. Most and people live in a cost-benefit life. I can, I can drive 900 miles an hour down Highway 95, but it, when they take away my car, because I am way over the speed limit and then I can't get to work and I lose my job. Like, Oh, yeah. I better slow down a little bit. <laughs> sure. I mean, and, and, and 
then federal agencies have to issue regulations to implement the law and they have to follow that, if you will, admonition that it satisfies cost benefit analysis, right? So, um, and it's in many ways, as you pointed out, it's a very technical, if you will, mechanical way of giving life to uh, the undue burden standard, which came in a previous case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the governor of Pennsylvania from 1992, okay? Um, in the plurality opinion, uh, co-authored by Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter, okay, we now know that the section about undue burden was written by O'Connor. And O'Connor said, okay, state regulations of a woman's right to choose must okay, not place an undue burden on a woman's right to choose, okay? So if the court or lower courts find that they are, you know, these regulations are not an undue burden, stand, undue burden then the regulations are constitutional, okay? Um, and they're, you know, and it's pretty fascinating reading Breyer's majority opinion and uh, Robert's concurring opinion because how they would go ahead and define undue burden, okay, is grossly different. <laughs> grossly different, right? Okay. Okay. Uh, but nevertheless, okay, you know, again, think about how close, okay, conservatives got to beginning to chip away at the constitutional foundation of a woman's right to choose. If Roberts had been in your language, a faithful conservative, okay, they would have overturned Hellerstead and said the Louisiana law was constitutional. And I, you know, and, you know, and- uh, Which is the first step to- To saying that there isn't, there is not a constitutional right, okay, for women to choose, okay? That it should be up to the states to determine whether or not you have the right, okay, to make that kind of choice. Right. Yep. Whew. And that would be complicated. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, you, you could theoretically have 50 different state laws about abortion. Which is that part of, is that part of why Revy went in the first place is because it was different application of the law in different states. That was, I mean, that One could argue that, right? Like if, if you did say it was a state's rights issue, then immediately someone would file a suit, I would think, saying that is not, th then it depends on where you live, which becomes its own undue burden of, that, of, of having to travel or having to not, you know what I mean? Being that, denied that, access to whatever. That's never been an explicit justification for the justices who have voted in favor of a woman's right to choose. Okay. Okay. They have always looked at it in terms of whether or not the federal constitution uh, protects the right to privacy. And then the next question is to what, you know, to what extent does that right of privacy cover things like, okay. Right. Um, so that's not been as much. I mean, because, you know, conservatives would go ahead and say, hey, all 50 states could uh, decide that a woman have a right to choose. 
but that is a political matter, not a constitutional matter. Yeah, I, I, I can see where that argument could be made. I would say my counter to that is um, it, it follows on to me from the, the discussion we had about the New York um, gun case, which, which is that if you don't have stability in the law, meaning if each general assembly or whatever it is that your state calls your, your gathering of, you know, state legislators, state legislatures, um, it, it, it could change from year to year. It could change from session to session, right? Depending on who has control of those. Like that, that just seems like that would get into, a, I don't know what the law is this year. I don't know. And then ramping up and ramping back down from whether clinics can or can't perform those. I, I, I can see where there needs to be some sort of federal standard yeah that there needs to be some sort of federal guideline that that says no this is a thing or it's not a thing as opposed to localities making that choice um well i mean if you also disenfranchise a bunch of people who may or may not have voted for those individuals and may or may not believe that to be the case i don't know there's a lot there's a lot in there that it's such a complex issue Right. Well, what, we're, what you're touching upon, Nia, is what uh, Justice Robert Jackson um, said in uh, the uh, 1943 case, West Virginia versus Barnett, where he said the Constitution uh, basically enshrines that there are some rights that should not be left to the political vagaries. Okay. Um, and what he was talking about in that case was the free exercise of religious rights, okay? Um, oh, but, but if you, along but, but, his lines, if you had left the South to its own devices, well, there it, are some places in the South where, where folks of color would still not be allowed to vote. Like, I mean. Yeah, okay. So then the question becomes, okay, what are those rights, okay? Right. Um, um, yeah, uh, that should not be left to political vagaries. Right. Okay. And then that, then we get back to the reasonableness standard where you have to try to figure out what's reasonable. Yeah. What's a reasonable regulation, right? right? I mean, because on one hand, you just got done making an argument, Nia, that having 50 different state laws about guns, okay, uh, uh, would be a problem. On the other hand, okay, there would be folks, for instance, in California or New York who would say, we want greater gun control legislation. And there are a whole bunch of state legislatures and I imagine Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, who are like, regulations on guns? No. Yeah, okay. our regulation is that everyone's required to have at least so, one. Yeah, right? Okay. <laughs> or something. They would never do that because, okay, then, but, you know, because then you get into a violation of the Commerce Clause by forcing people to buy a gun. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, no, they would, they would not do that. But yeah, I can see. But, okay, so. But, 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 but that's the thing about federalism, right? Right. Okay. It's complicated. I mean, well, in, in federalism is in part. Uh, it was advocated as a check on the national government forcing a kind of sort of one-size-fits-all mentality right. on the entire country. On the other hand, as you've also pointed out, 
sh should not residents through, you know, citizens across the country be able to go ahead and say, I have these, okay, collection of rights that no government, whether it be the federal government or state governments or local governments can ever infringe upon. Right. And, uh, the the one that comes to mind the most to me um uh in a, in most people that affects everybody in some way is voting yeah you should have the right to vote you should have the right to vote in a unmolested unforced like you you should just be able to vote in some way that is you know um reasonable and and takes into account um, things like physical inabilities or whatever, like there should be a way for everybody to vote. Um, it seems fundamental in a democracy to me that your vote should count and you should be able to vote. And when we left hand, it up to states, it got boogered up in some spots and then the federal, sorry, that's a, that's a technical term I just threw out there. Um, <laughs> Sorry, it got, I'm sorry, I apologize for that, it's kind of gross. Um, it got messed up in, in some way that the federal government then had to, had to intervene and say, okay, you know what, Congress is going to make an act, right, because isn't there the Voting Rights Act? Voting Rights Act of 1965. Right, which basically said, no, everybody has the right to vote, and you can't make it harder for one group to vote than the other. If, if one person has to pay a poll tax, everybody has to pay a poll tax like if okay. one person has to do this then everybody has to do it but as we've also uh, also discussed okay um the constitution also says states and only states have the authority to regulate the time place and manner of elections <laughs> i know the constitution is wrong about that <laughs> okay so i uh, just so we know, and the listener who said this to me, um, I don't hate the Constitution. Stop saying I hate the Constitution. You said it to me twice in email now. Um, I, I love the Constitution, but there are parts of it that I think, I, I think that we have weirdly enshrined the Constitution as some sort of metaphysical document that I'm not entirely certain I believe that it is anymore. I believe it is fundamentally very well written. But there's a reason we have an amendment process. Like we have an amendment process to fix things that were not that either gaps in the in the Constitution or things that they got wrong. I mean, the Constitution says that people of color, specifically slaves, were two thirds of a per three fifths of a person. Yes. Right? Like that's ridiculous. We don't believe that, and that's not. We shouldn't believe that. That's a wrong thing to believe. They just, yeah. believed it in their time because they were people of their time, but we had, we needed to fix it, so we did. So I'm so I appreciate your your calling me out on you think me hating the Constitution, and I know that part of that is because you think I hate the Second Amendment. It's not. I don't hate the Second Amendment. I hate bad grammar. Um, well, but, but, but I use bad grammar all the time, so I know I'm guilty of the thing I don't like, but. But, but Nia, to your larger point, and, and, and I tell this to my students, because, you know, some of them go ahead and say, I'm on the, on the other end of the spectrum, right? That I love the Constitution. I'm like, no, I don't love the Constitution. They said it was a governing document written by human beings, right? right? It has errors. It has problems. It had, 
it had it excludes things that looking back i kind of sort of wonder why did they exclude that right yeah it must have been a deal with somebody to not yeah, put I that mean, in or, there because they didn't want to get it more complicated or whatever or they were tired right i mean you know, <laughs> well you know that's how i feel about the judicial the whole yeah. third article is oh let's just throw something in there about the courts. about the courts and we'll give them independence but we won't fully flesh out you know all their duties yeah right? we won't say what that means we won't yes, right? say what their enforcement is or how they're paying you know, for the, yeah you mentioned the three-fifths compromise in regards to you know slaves right okay you know that's the nation's original sin we're still dealing with that right um you know we made it extremely difficult for the government to do stuff okay um and at times i get frustrated just like anybody else because you got to go through multiple layers of government just to get policy right okay at the same time, I, I'm kind of sort of like, okay, if we don't like it, we can change it. But also, too, okay, let's understand what is going on, okay, with our governing document. Because if I had to venture a guess, we have a whole bunch of elected officials who are not entirely sure what they can or cannot do, okay, within the operating manual known as the Constitution. Right. I have to wonder if people, if if some politicians have even read the Constitution. Oh, well, yeah. I mean. And then there's part of that, you know, it's the same people who say, I'm going to take you to the Supreme Court. No, you're not. It doesn't <laughs> work that way. <laughs> like, stop it. Have you not been listening to this podcast? It doesn't work that way. Okay. So, um, so they, so, so far that is semi-settled. I'm assuming that that will continue to be a fight that will be fought um, because that is not a, a uncontentious issue and it is not an issue that has been firmly settled in our yeah, nation. I, I, yeah, I mean, if I had to venture a guess and, uh, and I told a, uh, a couple newspaper reporters this who asked me about the, the court's ruling in the June medical case, I said, you know, this doesn't settle the issue. I mean, there are states who will continue to pass regulations uh, about a woman's right to choose. Um, you know, uh, and they'll work their way through the system. They'll work their way through the system. You got. Uh, I mean, the court. The, sorry, the lawsuits will work. So their way the through. lawsuits will. You got members of the Republican Party, including the the, the current president, who's running for reelection, who has now gone ahead and said. You know, we once again need to uh, increase our efforts to find uh, potential Supreme Court justices who will vote uh, 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 against a woman's right to choose. Okay, um, you know, this isn't going anywhere, right? right? right. Um, and if you're liberals, you got to be extremely uneasy that John Roberts decided to go ahead um, and voted with the liberals because again. If you read his concurring opinion, okay, this looks like a guy who's playing a long game here, okay? Well, uh, at, the, at the same time, he gave uh, advocates for a woman's right to choose a victory in this case. He made it very clear that if states actually did a better job coming up with, you know, uh, uh, reason laws. Then that he would have found for them. 
you would have found for them. And you would okay? have overturned precedent. Yeah. And I mean, and again, if, if I'm advised, you know, if I'm, if I'm a member of an interest group who is pro-life and wants to go ahead and come up with state laws, okay, that regulate a woman's right to choose and regulate it almost out of existence, I'm paying attention to what he wrote in his concurrence. Right. Okay. Um, again, right. justices frequently send us messages with their concurring and dissenting opinions. If you're willing to listen to what they say. Right. So he gave a roadmap to anti-choice. Yes. Um, advocates to say, here's how you would, I mean, not here's how he didn't write it out, but here's, you know, here's what I would, here's what I would take sympathy for if you wrote, if you wrote laws that were, and Justice Breyer technically gave them that too by saying, if you can show a cost benefit analysis where this does not show an undue burden. Yes. Then, then the, I will give it to the, to the anti-choice folks. Like that's a, that Nia, they both gave. Yes. Nia, I, I indications for a, that. I always give this as an example um, in, in my kind of law classes. In 1972, the United States Supreme Court declared that the death penalty was unconstitutional. It violated the Eighth Amendment. Um, in the uh, dissenting opinion written by Chief Justice Berger, he went ahead and summarized all of the reasons why those justices who found the death penalty was unconstitutional. He summarized all of the reasons that they you know, concluded that and pointed out to the states, if you addressed some of these concerns, you would be able to convince some of my colleagues that the death penalty was no longer unconstitutional. And that's what they did. Right. And four years later, the Supreme Court changed course and said, oh, the death penalty is now once again constitutional. I mean, Chief Justice Berger gave a roadmap, okay? Right. He gave a roadmap. Which is why you read the, which is why we put the opinions up on the research guide so that you can read them and see what they actually. That's right. What they actually say. Yes. Uh, yep. So are we going to tackle the, uh, oh, okay. Is there something else we need to tackle before we go on to the other biggie? Uh, no, I mean, the, the, we're going to, uh, in, uh, in separate podcast episodes, deal with uh, the Supreme Court decision in the booking.com case. So for those who are interested in trademarks, in trademark law, a little bit of foreshadowing for you all, okay? We have a, 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 a separate episode uh, with uh, uh, our, uh, our colleague, uh, uh, Hillary. Um, she is joining us once again uh, to discuss um, uh, US trademarks, okay? Uh, so we can discuss the booking.com case in another podcast episode. Right. Okay. We're going to, we, Hillary promised to come back. But sorry for listeners who haven't heard, we recorded a couple of episodes with Hillary um, to release later in the summer when we're on our little hiatus um, from recording uh, because Augie needs a break for me and I don't blame him. Um, no, the, no, 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 no,
Um, actually, because we're both going on vacation, so we won't be recording for a little bit. And she, uh, she's come, she came and talked to us about, so we'll be releasing an episode on copyright, and then we'll be releasing an episode on the booking.com. Um, the first, there'll be two of those. The first was what we thought was going to happen and what that meant and then what has actually happened. Yes. So those will be, uh, you can look forward to those at the end of the summer, um, sort of August-ish, I think. Yeah, so the, the last uh, case I want to go ahead and talk about is the Supreme Court ruling in Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue, okay? Um, and what was issued in this case, in this case uh was um uh, oh yes okay sorry i i so for listeners augie makes notes um for me to read ahead of time <laughs> and and i do but i don't remember the names of the like augie's got this phenomenal memory for being able to remember the names of the cases and i don't remember what we're talking about until he says something <laughs> or until I read the the first line of the document that he's where he gives me the too long didn't read version of the of the case, and I'm like, oh yes, this case. Um, so one, kudos to you for being able to remember all the names of all the cases because I just think that's amazing. But anyway, yes, this yes, I want to hear you explain this case in a way to me that won't make me frustrated. Okay, and by the way, listeners, okay, you know I, I remember case names. Um, because, you know, I remember case names the way people, uh, some people who are foodies remember ingredients for particular dishes, right? I remember case names like auto mechanics remember parts of an engine block, right? Okay, it, 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 it fits my mind, right? Right. You know, but I, I have friends who can go ahead and tell me, who wrote a movie from the 1930s who directed it okay and yes we have they, a librarian that i know that can do that she's amazing in in, in some and actor, i can't remember any of that i'm like you know that guy that was in that thing where it was black and white and there was a bird and she's like the maltese falcon i'm like yeah that one that's it <laughs> we're like i don't I mean, I knew I do remember the Maltese Falcon, but like you know, but but, but, but those people are amazing to me too because I don't I don't think of I don't remember details in that way. Yeah, there are there are movie. Uh, I have friends who are movie fans who can tell me some character actor who appeared on screen <laughs> for fifteen seconds, and I'm just like. Yeah, wow. you know, he was in the background of blah, yes. blah, blah from, from Dust Till Dawn. I'm like, I remember that George Clooney was in from Dust Till Dawn. Like, <laughs> I, I, can't, I, I can remember a few other people, but basically that's it. We're not talking about, and, and yeah, they can say, oh, no, he's a great character actor. I'm like, okay, I'm with you on that. Yeah, no, I'm, or people who remember baseball, like oh, a person's uh, that, baseball statistics where they, I'm, you know, somebody will come person. up. My grandmother was that person, but only for the Atlanta Braves. She oh. watched the Braves uh, every game they ever played on television. She watched, and we would be sitting there in the living room, and she would say, and they would show the stands briefly, and she'd say, "Oh, that's his wife. They got married." And blah 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 blah. And like, <laughs> How do you know that? And she's and she said, "Well, I just listened because the color, you know, the color commentary. They'll say yes. things like." 
oh, and they just got married two weeks ago. And my grandmother would remember it for five years and be able to say, they got married in March of 1982. Okay. Yeah. So... Yep, yep, yep. And my I, I, brain's I, like a sieve. I don't remember things. I write them down, which is why my desk is covered in about two inches of paper. Oh, like yeah, if, yeah. if my desk ever caught fire, it'd be the end of my knowledge because everything that I know is actually here written on a piece of paper somewhere. And, and listeners, she is speaking the truth. Oh, okay. I've been, I've, 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 I've been in her office. Post-its there, and there, there's post-its, there's notes. We're recording podcast episodes and Nia's always writing stuff down as yep. we're as we're recording the episode. I right? am, if I don't write it down, it's gone forever. Okay, it's it, you can't. I'm I'm surprised I remember my birthday <laughs> because I don't generally write it down. But okay, so this case Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. Yes. So uh, the state of Montana uh, created a, a tax incentive program that encourage donations um, for scholarships at private schools, okay? Right. Um, and- uh, Wait, you got a, it, it was charity, right? You got a tax, you got to put yeah, that on your taxes as- Yeah, so if okay. you donated, for instance, to a scholarship at a private school, okay, you got to write it off on your taxes, okay? Okay. Um, and by the way, that's a lot like you see with the federal tax code that allows you to take a tax deduction if you donate money to ch charities, right. okay? Um, right. It's a way to go ahead and encourage charitable giving. Montana wanted charitable giving for, uh, 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 if, if you will, poor students to attend private schools uh, because one of the things that Montana you know, figured out was there, one, isn't a lot of public schools, but also the quality of public schools in Montana okay, weren't necessarily all that good. So this was a way to go ahead and create school choice. And we could have a debate on whether or not school choice is a good thing or a bad thing. Oh, we could, but that's a, that's a whole it's episode a, on its own. So, uh, on its own. But Montana created the program, okay? okay. And uh, the state legislature did not exclude private schools that are religious. Okay. Right. Now, like any tax law, okay, state legislators are not going to be implementing tax law. That's why you have a Department of Revenue, okay, that implements regulations, okay, um, implementing the law. And, and I'm going to just say, as a side note, given the few state legislate, legislators that I have met, I'm good with that. Oh, so yes. I, yeah. I don't yeah, want yeah, them yeah, yeah, running yeah. any kind of financial. No, 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 yeah, no. no. Okay. Okay. No. And, and I joke all the time with my students. This is not to besmirch state, you know, state legislators. It's right? just not their gift most of the time. That's right. Some of them it is because some of them are business people, are very sound, very smart, good with money. But, but there's a reason we don't have the president run the IRS. That's right. Like, or, and there's or, a reason we don't have Mitch McConnell run the IRS. IRS or Nancy Pelosi or we don't your favorite. Want, right. Yeah. We don't want any of that. We want a nice separation between those groups. Yeah. You'll get a okay. lot less um, confusion about what's happening. You'll also get a lot less corruption because, and I don't right. mean corruption as intentional corruption, but corruption as in 
when you misspell in a document, it's a, it's a corruption of the document, right? Like it's that yeah. kind of thing where well, they're I mean, like, oh, I thought it said this. Oh, have you read the 4,000 page tax code? I mean, yeah, I mean, think about it. Those again, are specialists. I mean, the modern administrative state is predicated on neutrally competent experts. Right. Okay. We want people who are implementing the tax code. Okay. Who like that. Yeah. Who are good at who, who, who like that minutia. And that's okay. their thing. They know yes. it really well. I mean, I, yes. one of my aunts worked for the IRS her entire career. Yes. And that's what she did. And she knew tax law really, really, really well. Cause she, yeah. anyway. Okay. So, so, so the, the, it goes to the department of, of revenue, revenue. And the department of revenue. Okay. Um, you know, checks the state constitution and Montana, like, well over 30 other states in this country have state constitutional provisions that do not allow tax dollars or equivalents to be used for religious organizations, including religious schools. So they go ahead and say, okay, this tax incentive program only applies to private schools that are non-religious. Right. Well, Espinosa. Because the Montana Constitution, state Constitution says prohibits. That. That's right. Right. Espinosa, so it's not like they were just making that up. Nope. Espinosa challenges, and the state Supreme Court said, "Okay, well, because of this provision, okay, uh, the tax incentive program, okay, is unconstitutional." Unconstitutional for the state constitution. Un-Montana un constitutional. Constitutional, that's right. Okay. <laughs> As well, if that was one word. Yes. Well, Espinosa is like, hey, wait a minute here. You're, you are discriminating against, okay, people who want to send their kids to religious schools. Okay. This violates the free exercise clause of the First, First Amendment. Amendment of the federal constitution. <laughs> and as we know, federal constitution trumps state constitutions. And that's supre the supremacy clause. There you go, right? Okay. See, I pay attention. I listen to you. Not all the time, but most of the time. Well, you know, hey, okay. Um, I, 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 wouldn't <laughs> I don't listen. listen to you about hair color and stuff like that, but I listen to you about the Constitution. Well, for good reason, because, you know, you're, you actually are an expert about hair color, whereas quite obviously, if anybody's seen a picture of me, it doesn't look like I do anything with my hair any day. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just, there's, there's an emphasis. Well, you, got, you got that cool roll out of bed look. A well, lot of times. Nia likes to share an, uh, an anecdote, okay, about how one of her colleagues attended a meeting I went to first thing one morning, okay, and Nia asked, uh, how was Augie, and her colleague said, well, by the looks of his hair, it looked like he just rolled out of bed. <laughs> hey, she said it fondly. Um, so, so it goes Spinoza the says, this is a Right, there's a, so what it is, is there's a problem between the federal constitution and the state constitution. Yeah. And That's in, the fundamental legal question, right? Yes. Well, and in particular, the Mont Montana state Supreme, uh, state Supreme Court went ahead and said, the federal constitution prohibits the establishment of religion. And the way we have interpreted that is in our constitution, 
we do not allow any state tax monies or equivalents to be used for any religious purpose. But Espinosa is like, but wait a minute, your actions in complying with the Establishment Clause of the Federal Constitution violates my religion rights under the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment of the Federal Constitution. So it goes to the United States Supreme Court and the court in a five to four ruling, and wait for it, guess who wrote the majority opinion? Mm, I'm gonna say John Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I'm gonna say John Roberts is because he seems to be writing a lot of these lately. Oh my goodness. He's having quite the writing summer. He's, he, he's having a, a- His fingerprints are on a lot of, of uh, opinions and documents this summer. There used to be the old joke, Nia, that when Anthony Kennedy was still on the court after um, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor had uh, retired, that it was Anthony Kennedy's world and the rest of us were just <laughs> living in it. Okay. Now I am beginning to joke. In fact, I'm probably going to write a musings column about it. Okay. We're now living in John Roberts' world. Okay. Um, and he's just letting us be here. Yeah, that's right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, Roberts went ahead and said that states are under no constitutional or federal law obligation to subsidize private education. But once they make the decision to do so, okay, they can't exclude religious schools from receiving funds simply because they are religious. Okay? Okay. And he said, that's what the free exercise clause requires. You can't exclude religious groups if you go ahead and create a benefit, okay, for non-religious groups. Okay? Okay. And he's relying on a precedent from three years ago, uh, the Trinity Lutheran Church precedent. Missouri had created a program where they um, uh, uh, gave grant money, yeah, they gave grant money um, that would allow schools to use uh, recycled rubber, okay, for playgrounds. So for those of you who don't have kids, a lot of playgrounds now, instead of using mulch or dirt, okay, will actually use this, this, this foundation that's like made out of recycled rubber, okay? And it's safer for kids and it's actually cheaper to maintain because you don't have to keep on putting in fresh mulch or, you know, do landscaping or whatever, okay? It's this kind of sort of, artificial turf, if you will, but it's made of recycled ru rubber. And again, I have an eight-year-old and she loves parks and she loves those parks. She's just like, oh, daddy, you know, okay, this is so much better than mulch. Right? Well, I'm assuming it's bouncy on their feet a little bit. Oh my goodness, yes. When they, when right? they land, it yes. gives yes. a little. Yeah, right? Okay. But the Missouri program explicitly, okay, so it was a grant program, okay? And uh, 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 schools had to apply to receive the grant money. 
And, but the, the, the way it was implemented by the executive branch in the state of Missouri, religious schools could not apply for the grants. And the Supreme Court said, hey, wait a minute here. If this is open up to, okay, public schools, you can't exclude religious schools simply because, okay, they are religious. If this is an otherwise generally applicable, if you will, program, you can't exclude folks simply because, uh, uh, a school simply because they're religious. So Robert said, this is a pretty easy case for us to decide. Once Montana created the tax incentive program, okay, they had to go ahead and offer it up for all private schools, okay, not just, okay, non-religious private schools, okay? Now, <laughs> the four liberals are like, hey, wait a minute here. This means that Montana is now forced to be entangled with religion, and those Montanans who are not religious, okay, have an establishment clause complaint. <laughs> so you got this divide on the court between those who are like, no, the free exercise clause, okay, doesn't mean the government can't be involved in religion. It just, you know, it means that if you're going to offer a benefit or a program to non-religious folks, you can't exclude religious folks or institutions versus the liberals who are like, hey, wait a minute here. They're the establishment clause means there is a complete wall between church and state. Yes. Okay. And this is one of those times to where Nia and I get to practice the title of our podcast because she and I disagree on this. Okay. Um, and, and, and I'm not, I, I'm just going to offer a brief paraphrase. Nia's position, uh, listeners, is that there should be a wall between the government, okay, and religion. Yes. Okay. That is, that is the simplest way that, I mean, I have a lots of nuance to my argument, but yes, the, I read the first amendment as, as there, there should be a distinct separation between those two things. There's a separation between church and state, because I worry that if there is not, there will be undue influence in both directions. Okay. I, I worry that state could do things to small or um, unprotected little religions and churches and and crush them. And I worry that powerful religious organizations could have an influence on the state that I am uncomfortable with. Yes. Okay. My And, and uh, my position is what uh, scholars refer to as accommodationist. Okay that these two competing clauses um, require accommodation, okay? Um, that um, uh, if you look at the historical origins of the country, uh, religion was a fundamental part of almost every single colony that was granted a charter by the British government, and that historically, um, it's pretty difficult to go ahead and uh, have that, if you will, 
uh, separation between church and state. Okay. Right. But and again, and yet it, we're still friends. <laughs> right. Because that's the point of civil dis. The point of civil dis. Yes. I I. I am not unsympathetic to the idea that it is unfair for children because I perceive it as people, right? So that children in a public school are getting a benefit that children in a private religious school are not getting. I am not unsympathetic to the problem of that, right? That they're, that as far as kids are concerned, they should be able to get the same playgrounds. They should be able to get the same scholarships, right? There should be some somehow I hear you on accommodation my verse to that is that I'm concerned about it being state tax dollars and if there was some way that you when you gave your money could say I want or do not want or don't care one way or the other which group this goes to I would be in favor of it because it would allow people to opt in to saying, I don't care. I don't care who you give the scholarship to. I don't care what school they're going to. But for people who either belong to a different religion and don't want to support, uh, you know what I mean? A, a school of a religion they don't belong to, or if they're a person who's not of a, a person of faith and they don't want to support faith at all, they should be able to opt out and say, no, my money goes to, public schools only okay but, but i i think if you had those options okay but i'm going to extend this uh, uh to an analog because again you know i teach public law and analogs are used all the time should you know what if you went ahead and extended that opt-out or opt-in function to charitable giving just generally right at that point then the government has then a role in either facilitating or not facilitating charitable giving why don't why not just go ahead and get rid of all tax subsidies for charitable giving i mean because if, if you think about it my tax dollars are subsidizing people giving money to charitable organizations I don't like. So that violates my freedom of speech. Okay. Okay. That's also protected, <laughs> but that's also protected by the First Amendment, right? Right. Ah. Well, except that I'm not sure that I agree that money is speech. That's a that's something that the government <laughs> has, that the courts have decided, and you and I could probably talk about that endlessly um but i'm not oh, yeah, sure that i that i believe yeah, 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 that i'm not sure that i believe that money should be speech right like i'm not disagreeing that it is speech at this point but i'm not certain that i think that it should be i i, I worry that when you that money is enormously a bad influence in politics that the more money you have the more likely you are to get what you want and poor people be damned right sure. if they wanted to influence policy they'd make more money right that's what that's what some rich people think not all rich people obviously and we're not talking about all people but i i struggle but see i struggle with i, I 
part of this is part and parcel of I struggle with the concept of churches as tax-free organizations. Sure. sure. I struggle with that. Yes. Because I struggle with what defines a church. I just, I struggle with, you know, you know what I mean? And what the, and, and there are some organizations that are listed as charitable that I don't think are charitable. Well, it's nothing that I'm not charitable at all, but their, their purpose isn't particularly charitable. Um, their purpose is influence. I, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the NRA in this particular instance, right? Huge oh, amount hey, of what their I mean, work we, is influence, we, we, which I, mean, I don't consider to be charitable. So like I have a whole, I, I think my problem is, is that it's tax oriented. Like, I don't know. I, I, I am, I am concerned in part too, that this benefits a certain class of people in ways that it does not benefit. How do I, how do I say this accurately? So if you're wealthy and you're able to give a fair bit of money to scholarships in religious organizations, right? Then, then people who are poorer but need a scholarship to go to a private school may end up going to a school where they are religiously influenced. Oh yeah, yeah. in a way that they were not. Yes, you know, you know what I mean. But like, they need yeah. a scholarship. They want. They need the education because, in some ways, if their public school is terrible, they need the private education because they want to get into college. They want to get good they want to get good enough scores to get into college to do well and that kind of thing, right? They want a good grounding. So, so like you're, you're saying to poor people, well, the only scholarships that are going to be available you because there's this huge fund at this religious school. So now you end up going to a religious school you wouldn't have gone to otherwise. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. There's just a lot of, I, I really, I worry about money and influence. Oh, Hey, Churches aside, I worry about a lot of money and influence and how money buys influence in ways that we don't think about the carry-on effects of. I mean, Nia, you were pointing to uh, standard criticisms of not only the role of money in our elections, but also standard criticisms I have heard for years about our tax code, our federal tax code, um, uh, giving uh, uh, tax write-offs for uh, individuals who don donate to charities, okay? Um, because again, it is rich people who are donating money, okay? Which means they have outside, outsized influence within those charitable organizations, right. okay? Um, at the same time though, um, I have plenty of friends who work in nonprofits and they were like, without that particular tax incentive yeah we don't exist we don't exist yeah because, that, that's a fair point okay because we can't rely just on the government right. okay and we can't rely on just you know the good nature of you know solidly middle class people to donate money okay right. okay um and know. we can't all pull the obama campaign five dollar Yes. Donation okay. thing like that, that, that yes. sometimes you need really big donors because you have to do a really big thing. Yes. So, yeah. you know, you make a really good point there. You know, where I come back on it is, and this kind of sort of brings us back to, 
you know, uh, what we discussed like 15, 20 minutes ago <laughs> in regards to our views, you know, you getting labeled being uh, uh, negative about the Constitution and me getting accused of being, you know, pro-Constitution. I mean, I, I explicitly point out these two clauses in the First Amendment, the religion clauses, and said, how could the framers not think that these two clauses would not cause conflict? Okay, how could right. they not? Now, of course, I have 220 plus years of case law, okay, right. that, you know, supports, okay, my bewilderment, okay, but at the same time, on one hand, there is the, 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 uh, the, 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 the admonition, no establishment of religion. On the other hand, there says, your exercise of your religious beliefs cannot be infringed upon, okay? Well, Okay. Uh, your point that that they were founded that we were founded in a in a by religious many religious culture. organizations and religion as the culture they may have viewed it differently because it was so imbued oh yeah in oh, some yeah. ways yeah. that that they were like well of course those things make sense and we're like no they don't but that's <laughs> but you know no i can see i can see your point that that well and i can also see your point that they probably didn't intend quite the level of separation that I would like to see um, because for them it was inconceivable that religion was not a daily part of life yeah like and like active religion like you know you you not only being involved with your with your religious activities but it being involved with the people in your church the way my parents friend group is is a lot yep. within their church that's their social and cultural milieu and so for them there there would be less disconnect um, oh, sure. so I mean, so I, I i take your point that there's that there is some there is historical cultural um uh reasons for these establishment or for these clauses and for to for the founders to think that they could work together in some sort of concert. Yeah, and, and, and as we conclude our podcast episode, guys, I really do want you uh, to take a look at all of the opinions written in the Espinosa case. There are seven of them. I was going to say, everybody except you and me wrote an opinion. <laughs> We're the only two people who didn't write an opinion on this, on this particular case. They um, all have uh, a lot to say. They all have a lot to say, and, and by the way, uh, take uh, take a look at Thomas's concurring opinion um, in regards to what he thinks the framers intended with the Establishment Clause, oh. but also read a couple of the dissents who also talk about how some of the framers, okay, including Thomas Jefferson, were adamantly, okay, uh, uh, advocates of, Nia, your perspective. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is probably the, the most noteworthy advocate of a wall between church and state. Right. Okay. And I think he's the first person to put it into some letter or something that he yes. wrote. It's not written in any of our founding documents, but it's... Yeah, okay. And it's somewhere in one of his writings that it was a, it's a phrase that we've come from, that comes from him, separation of church and state. State. And... and um, so, you know, this difficulty in understanding how they, 
these two clauses can be congruent flows from, okay, you know, the framers to a certain extent being all over the proverbial map on, okay, no religion. Because remember, many framers left Great Britain because they didn't want to comply with the king's edict that they all must be members of the Anglican church. Okay. Well, I mean, and some of them were not particularly religious at all. Oh, like they. Yes. Right. Jefferson comes to mind. Yeah. He had so, some very interesting ideas about religion. Yeah, I mean, he believed in God, but he didn't believe in organized church. Right. And he, <laughs> and he took a Bible and sort of cut out pieces that he didn't like. Yes. So he had okay. Jefferson's Bible, which is his yes. fascinating thing. It's at Monticello, if you ever want to take a look at it. Yeah. Um, okay. It should be at the Library of Congress, but it's at Monticello. Okay. He so, said as a librarian, slightly bitterly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so readers, as we conclude this podcast. Oh, uh, oh mean, sorry. Go ahead. But I really want you to go ahead and see, you know, you know, you know, read those opinions, but also take note of the fact that you know, Nee and I, a long time ago, acknowledged that we're on uh, different sides of this particular issue, okay? And, you know, and I readily concede, okay, a number of your points. And okay? I yours. I mean, that religion could have an outside, outsized influence, and, 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 uh, 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 a very dangerous influence on government, but also, do we really want government okay, having influence on what religious organizations do, okay? Right. I mean, right. you know... It and do we want to punish people for being in a religion, religious organization? And in some ways, that's what this would be. And so... Yes, I mean... I can see, I can see your points on the other side, that, there, that there's... I mean, how do, we, how do we encourage equality of treatment, okay, which is a fundamental value in the U.S. Constitution... Right, if we say one group isn't going to get the support that the other group is. That's right. Simply exactly. because, yeah, simply because you guys are members of the uh, of this particular group. Right, and we, and it doesn't say in the First Amendment that we get to punish you for religion. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it, it's not so. So yeah, I mean, I I can see. So so I would yeah, I would encourage you if you're frustrated or upset or or about any of these um, cases that have come along to to stop and think to yourself, the other side is probably not malicious. They have real beliefs. They have them for a reason. And listening to somebody, there's probably a lot of things that you can say, no, I concede. That's, that's a good point. And we have more consensus than we have, than we think a lot of the time. Oh yeah. I mean, um, because, you know, I mean, you and I come from different ends of the spectrum about campaign finance. Okay. But both of us agree money, okay, okay, is a dangerous element for campaign finance. Yes. Okay, no doubt about it. Right. So you you can get to a fundamental place if you, if you let go of some of your personal, um, uh, biases is not the right word, but your, your sort of feelings of, of um, being threatened if your ideas are challenged. It's good for your ideas to be challenged, because it either helps you get rid of the ones that you go oh yeah no that doesn't make any sense or it helps you retrench the ones where you say no i firmly believe x thing 
and here's why helps you articulate your argument so it's one sure. of the things that we we, we we value about each other and about this this sort of work so we encourage you to do it so I do want to thank people for sticking in with us. I know this was a longer episode than we normally do, but I think um, we had a lot to say. There was a lot to cover. And, uh, and thank you for listening. And thank you, Augie, for talking me through it all. Thank you. You're welcome, Nia. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.